Hi, ParCast listeners, it's Sarah. In honor of Earth Day, all of ParCast is bringing you a special event called Dark Green, Earth Crimes and Conspiracies. For this event, we're investigating the shadowy corners where crime and the environment meet and telling those stories. Because climate change isn't just about science and the weather. It shows up in all parts of society and culture, even crime. For example, do you know about the strange circumstances surrounding the 1974 death of a chemical technician? Or that in the early 2000s, there was a serial killer with a very specific target, hikers in the national forests? Or did you know about the many environmental activists who go missing or end up dead? To hear these stories and more, come along with us for a different kind of Earth Day celebration. And if you'd like to learn more and take action on climate change, visit spotify.com slash darkgreenresources. A note before we begin. This episode contains discussions of death by exposure. Listener discretion is advised, especially for those under 13. The Smoky Mountains might not be haunted, but they're full of ghosts. For Dwight McCarter, this story is one of them. A little boy gets lost in the woods. A search party spends over two months looking for him, but they come away empty-handed. Dwight was a part of that search party. He's a park ranger, and he took the fact that Dennis Barton was never found personally. He always comes back to this one moment a moment when he followed orders instead of choosing to follow his gut. He worries that that's how they lost Dennis Martin forever. In the years that followed, Dwight, like a lot of rangers who worked on this case, dedicated themselves to making sure it never happened again. And because of it, tens of thousands of people have been rescued, all because of people like Dwight. But more importantly, because of Dennis Martin. I'm Sarah Turney, and this is Disappearances, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every Thursday, I examine a new missing person case ripped from history. I want to better understand the many reasons people disappear and the impact their absences can have on those left behind. Today, I'm covering the story of Dennis Martin, a six-year-old who got lost in the forest while playing hide-and-seek. The rangers who worked his case were so affected, they worked to change the way the National Park Service rangers search for missing people across the country. Because of Dennis, they've saved tens of thousands of lives. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? 
Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. The Great Smoky Mountains are designed to keep secrets. To swallow anything that steps off the trail. Each morning, fog sets in over the deep wood, casting the forest in a haze, making it hard to see the jagged cliffs and steep ravines hiding beneath the brush. In summer, a thick layer of fallen leaves decays, becoming another inch of topsoil. At that rate, it doesn't take long to bury what's been left behind. The canopy is so thick, it's usually impossible to see the ground from above. Picture that, over and over and over, for more than 800 square miles. To put all that in perspective, more than 50 planes have gone down inside Great Smoky Mountain National Park. Several have never been found. Okay, it's Father's Day weekend, June 13th, 1969. Bill Martin is driving his sons, nine-year-old Doug and six-year-old Dennis into the Smoky Mountains for a camping trip. Their grandfather Clyde is also tagging along. It's a boys' trip. They're making their way up to Cade's Cove, it's a lush, sweeping valley surrounded by mountain peaks, a picturesque place to start their weekend and spot some wildlife. And this is a special place to the Martins. Their ancestors used to farm here back in the 1800s. They took advantage of the rich soil and grassy meadows to farm. They raised cattle in Cades Grove until Great Smoky Mountain National Park was founded in 1934. At that point, the farming stopped, but the Martin men still make this trip to the park each June. And this is the first year Dennis gets to join them. Not that he's new to nature. The Martins are big on hiking and camping. Bill's carried Dennis on hikes since before he could walk. These days, he and his brother Doug are so fast, it's hard for the adults to keep up. After parking near Cade's Cove, the Martin men hike up to nearby Russell Field. It's easy to picture the boys setting up camp, roasting marshmallows, and falling asleep in the shelter at night. Sometime after sunrise, the Martins cook up some breakfast, then set out for Spence Field, another grassy field a few miles to the east. It's not a far hike, but the trails in this part of the Smokies can be winding, just six inches across at points, barely looking like a trail at all. But Bill and Clyde know these woods. They have no problem navigating their way to Spence. Once there, Bill and Clyde make conversation with another group of campers. They also have two boys who get along with Dennis and Doug, so the families decide to have lunch together. Afterward, the adults hang out on the grass, talking and taking in the views. Doug, Dennis, and their two friends who are around the same age run off to play. The adults are keeping an eye on them, and Dennis is especially easy to spot. He's wearing a bright red t-shirt. At this point, it's about 4.30 p.m. The adults watch as the four boys huddle up, whispering back and forth. Then the kids scatter. Doug and the two other boys head south, while Dennis goes running in the opposite direction. The boys all run into the tree line. 
but they're not exactly subtle. The adults can see them snaking their way around. They're pretty sure the plan is to jump out and scare them. And sure enough, a moment later, the three older boys come tumbling out of the bushes, screaming while the adults feign surprise. The kids shriek with delight. But as the laughter dies down, Bill scans the tree line. Where's Dennis? The boys say they told him to head the other way so his shirt wouldn't give them away. Bill and Clyde start calling his name, but Dennis doesn't reappear. The Martin family canvasses Spence Field. They check the nearby trails and the camping shelter. There's no sign of Dennis. Grandpa Clyde immediately takes off for the nearest ranger station to let them know Dennis is missing. Mind you, the closest station is six and a half miles down trail, so it's a few hours hike. Clyde gets a move on. In the meantime, the family keeps searching. Bill wonders if Dennis got turned around and wandered out of earshot, so he hikes the mile or two back to their campsite at Russell Field. No Dennis. Along the way, he runs into a park naturalist who just hiked into Russell Field from Cade's Cove where Bill's car is parked. But the naturalist hasn't seen a little boy or anything unusual along the way. In the distance, there's a rumble of thunder. This is dangerous for two reasons. First, it can wash away any footprints or any other clues Dennis left in his wake. Second, mud makes it easy to slip into a rushing river or one of the deep ravines that pockmark the area. Even if Dennis doesn't get hurt, he'll still be soaked to the bone. And right now, there's one more worry on Bill's mind. Nightfall. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Let me formally introduce you to Dwight McCarter. In 1969, he's a backcountry park ranger in his early 20s. He knows the area around Cades Cove like the back of his hand. But on the night of June 14th, he's home, reading the paper and listening to the rain pelt his windows. It's a hell of a storm, but it's soothing when you're safe and dry. He gets the call around 10.30 p.m. There's a six-year-old lost in the park. His grandfather showed up at the station about two hours ago and reported the kid missing. A few rangers drove with him back to Spence Field and searched as long as they could. But at some point, the rain made it too dangerous to keep looking. So the family took refuge in the Spence camping shelter. They're up there now, waiting out the storm. Chief Ranger Snedden asked Dwight to report for duty at 5 a.m. A search party's convening and it's all hands on deck. Dwight spends a sleepless night tossing and turning. All the comfort he took in the storm is gone now. Like Bill Martin, he knows how quickly hypothermia can set in for little kids. The storm rages outside. He listens, knowing that each drop lowers their chances of finding Dennis. Finally, Dwight gives up. He throws on his uniform and heads into the park early, waiting for the other rangers to show up. It isn't long before their headlights poke through the trees. 
It's Sunday, June 15th, Father's Day. Dwight's among more than 50 rangers who gather around for an update. From the get-go, the situation is bleak. For one thing, a whopping two and a half inches of rain fell overnight, turning the trails to pure mud. The streams and rivers around Cades Cove are rushing and turbulent, making them dangerous, and so loud it's hard to hear over them. Some of the roads are flooded too. It'll be slow moving up to Spence Field, wasting precious time. And they don't really have a plan for once they get up there. There's no procedure for dealing with this kind of search and rescue mission. The Smokies have only been a national park for 35 years. And in that time, it seems like there aren't any other cases of kids going missing. They're behind the eight ball before they even begin. But what they lack in experience, they more than make up for in manpower and an onslaught of volunteers. They've also got a helicopter on the way to make sweeps of the area. The canopy is so thick, they might not be able to see much, but at the very least, they can help transport supplies up to Spence Field. Dwight's boss, Chief Ranger Snedden, also called in additional National Park personnel, local rescue squads, and a hiking club that's familiar with the area. By Dwight's count, the search party is 150 strong, with more volunteers scheduled to arrive later on. Chief Snedden's idea is to flood the area with people, get as many boots on the ground as possible so every inch of the forest floor is combed. Dwight's part of a four-man team that spends the morning walking along the creeks that lead away from Spence Field. Given the flash floods, they're worried that Dennis could be in one of the drainage systems downhill. But thankfully, there's no sign of him. Another 90 or so volunteers show up after lunch. They arrive at Spence Field, bringing the official search number to 250. That's a lot of generous and well-intentioned help. Dwight knows he should be grateful for the extra sets of eyes. And yet, as he watches these people tromp off into the woods screaming for Dennis, he can't help but feel like something is off. Dwight's never studied psychology or anything like that but he knows how kids act when they're lost in the woods. In his experience, they hide. It's like some primal part of them thinks that they did something wrong and they run from adults sent to help them. Granted, I'm sure there are plenty of kids that would come running if they just spent a night alone in the woods or at least cry out. But according to his dad, Bill, Dennis is shy. He's sweet and doe-eyed and he doesn't speak out much. Bill says it's because of a learning disability that's also put him a little behind in school. For all Dwight knows, Dennis might be especially scared by the search party. Yet here they are, screaming his name, helicopters roaring overhead. If Dennis is nearby, he's gotta be able to hear them. Then there's another problem. The rain's already washed away so many potential clues. All of these volunteers are untrained. Could they be bypassing or even stepping on clues without knowing it? It's a chilling thought that all this help is actually making it harder to find Dennis Martin. With each step, Dwight's reminded of how easy it is to lose your way in these woods. Millions of people visit the Smokies each year, and yet there's so much forest that feels untouched. And what humans have changed, the forest is quickly reclaiming. Back at Spence Field, Bill Martin is trying his best to keep it together. He finally made contact with his wife, Violet, to let her know that Dennis is missing. 
She'll head up to Spencefield in the morning if they haven't found him yet. But at this point, everyone's confident that Dennis has to be somewhat close by. They're outlining theories on what happened. There's the obvious one. The boy got lost of his own accord and is still out there, very possibly still alive, though he may be hurt or stuck. The second theory is that a wild animal intervened. At some point, a member of the Martin family lets the rangers know about a bear they spotted near Cade's Cove at the start of the trip. It was small and skittered into the woods, but it still made them a bit uneasy. Usually, black bears leave humans alone, but the park's actually coming out of a drought. The normal food supply for a black bear is not what it should be. To build on that, about a week ago, the park rangers rescued a black bear. It had gotten caught in a wild boar trap. It was bone thin and was probably lured into the trap by corn, which bears don't eat. By Monday evening, more than 300 people are out looking for Dennis, including a Boy Scout troop, a team of bloodhounds, and a team of expert trackers that Dwight the Ranger has worked with before. Even though it's more people, Dwight's relieved to hear that more professionals are joining the search. On Tuesday, even more backup arrives. Major military groups like the Air National Guard and the Green Berets. And that afternoon, two volunteers actually find a clue. About a mile south of Spencefield, the hikers find a faint set of child-sized tracks along a water break. They follow the prints for about 300 yards until they disappear at the edge of a stream. One of the prints is a bare foot. Rangers make a cast of it to show the Martins, but Bill says it looks too big to be his son. Chief Sneddon dismisses the prints, saying they probably belong to one of the Boy Scouts. Besides, the Green Berets already swept that creek bed. If they didn't find anything, the prints must be new. But when Dwight hears about the tracks, he isn't so sure. After all, the Boy Scouts have stayed together as a troop. The volunteers didn't find a bunch of kids' footprints, they found one set, and none of the Boy Scouts lost a shoe. Darkness falls, and the park rangers light campfires. They hope that if Dennis is still wandering out there somewhere, the warm glow could lead him back to camp. But once again, no Dennis. Friday, June 20th is Dennis's seventh birthday. Instead of a party, 780 volunteers show up to search for him. And at this point, everyone is being pushed to the brink of exhaustion. Some of the rangers are working 18-hour days. At one point, a volunteer accidentally shoots himself in the leg. Another falls off a bridge and breaks his arm. It's complete chaos. And Dwight can't help but worry that they've lost Dennis Martin forever. In a quiet moment, he thinks, happy birthday, Dennis, wherever you are. By Sunday, June 22nd, Dennis has been missing for over a week. The search and rescue mission has covered more than 56 square miles of park, way farther than Dennis could ever wander on his own. The day before saw the largest search effort of its kind ever assembled in the area. More than 1,400 volunteers looking for Dennis. The search has cost nearly half a million dollars in today's money and more than 13,000 hours of collective manpower. They truly gave it their all. 
Three days later, the Martins make the heartbreaking decision to pry themselves away from Spence Field and return home. I don't know what that car ride was like, but I imagine they felt every mile of it. Only a small crew stays to keep searching for Dennis, including Dwight, and for the next week, there isn't any progress. But before we get to that, I wanna pivot to a part of the story that isn't often told, largely because it went unreported for years. Let's go back to June 14th, the day Dennis Martin went missing. That same afternoon, Harold Key, an engineer for the state and father of three, drove his family from nearby Carthage, Tennessee to Rowan's Creek, about seven miles northwest of Spence Field. As his family piles out of the car, Harold sees an older white car parked alongside the road. He doesn't think much of it at first, but then he spots a middle-aged white male walking out of the woods toward the road. Harold makes eye contact and the man looks nervous. He quickens his pace and beelines for the road where the white car is parked. Harold suspects the man is a moonshiner, alcohol bootleggers who hid from authorities in the mountains during prohibition. That's enough to worry Harold, so he calls for his wife and kids to start heading back to the car, about half a mile back to the road. A moment later, someone or something cries out in agony. Harold hikes up the path a few hundred yards looking for the source of the noise, but he doesn't see anything. He thinks the cry came from a few miles up the mountain, but he can't tell where exactly. His son, Anthony, also heard the scream, but he thinks it sounded like an animal. Now, for the record, apparently mountain lions can sound like a human screaming, so this isn't impossible. He walks with his family back to the car and notices something else strange. That white car he saw when he first parked is now gone. A few days later, when he's back home in Carthage, Harold reads about Dennis's disappearance in the paper. At first, the Key family decides not to report what they saw that day in the woods. He thinks too many people are flooding the investigators with phony leads. But eventually, more comes out about Dennis. And Harold realizes he must have been closer to Dennis's last known location than he thought. He spends the next days full of worry. And after sleepless nights thinking about the man in the woods, Harold does something. He reports the incident to the FBI. Now, they're not directly involved in the case, but they are helping to collect information for investigators in the area. And two agents come over to question him. But according to Harold, they don't seem overly interested in his story. They just ask him not to speak about it to anyone else. Not long after, they ask Harold to meet them back at Rowan's Creek to show them exactly where he saw the man and the white car. Now, it's possible the FBI doesn't pursue the story because they don't want to get any hopes up with a false lead. Rowan's Creek is six or seven miles from Spencefield. In terms of timeline, it seems nearly impossible that the man with the white car had anything to do with Dennis's disappearance. Also, there's a major hurdle to getting the FBI involved, their jurisdiction. The Martins push for action at the federal level and Bill meets with special agents from the regional office early on to explain his hunch. The Dennis was kidnapped. Though they offer their support and even say that they'll look into the leads on the theory, there needs to be suitable evidence that Dennis was kidnapped for them to launch an official investigation. 
Bill Martin even gets his congressman, John Duncan, to advocate for FBI involvement, who writes directly to FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover, asking for any kind of official look into the case. But even as they hear stories like Harold Keyes, they face the same issue the search teams on the ground face. There's just not enough substance to move forward. All the trails lead nowhere. And it seems like that's it for Dennis's case. Until July 3rd, nearly three weeks after Dennis goes missing. That morning, Dwight and a few other searchers are looking for Dennis along West Prong Trail, a little ways below Spence Field. The wind picks up and carries with it something foul. Dwight radios park officials. He thinks something died in the area, but not a bear or a deer. He's smelled dead game before. This isn't it. He thinks the team should canvas the area, but his team lead instructs them to keep going. That area was checked the other day. The smell's coming from a dead crow. He tells Dwight to move on. Now, Dwight's encountered dead crows before. They don't smell like this. He doesn't really know what the smell is. He just doesn't feel right about ignoring it. But park officials won't listen, and Dwight's obligated to follow orders. So against his better instinct, he peels himself away and continues through the forest. It's a decision he's regretted ever since. Because in the days that followed, he realizes the stench picked up just as he was downwind of Eagle Creek, which is where the two volunteers found that child-sized set of footprints back on June 17th, the ones that supposedly belonged to a Boy Scout. Dwight reminisces on this moment, the one where he obeyed orders instead of following his gut every time he's asked about Dennis Martin. You can hear the anger in his voice. He talks about how after that day, he never second-guessed himself again. Instead, he proudly told off his superiors a few times, trusting his hunches over their orders. It's the posturing of a man who's never fully forgiven himself. In the end, we're left pulling at all these loose threads. The white car, the odd smell, the scream in the woods. We can't know if they're clues or red herrings. It makes sense that Dennis is still out in the woods somewhere, hidden from view. We just don't know whether he died of exposure or foul play or was taken. There's a final piece of the story I want to share. In 1985, Dwight's approached by a man who says he might have information on Dennis Martin. Sometime after Dennis went missing, this man says he was out in the woods illegally hunting ginseng. He wandered by an uprooted tree near an area called Big Hollow when he found a child-sized skeleton lying in the dirt. He didn't say anything at the time because he was afraid of getting into trouble. I don't know what made him finally come forward. Dwight files a report and park officials send a crew of 30 men to search the hollow, but they don't find anything. It's possible that humidity, rain, and scavengers pick the evidence apart, or the man was lying. People do odd things for attention. But what's interesting is that Big Hollow is a short 30-minute drive from Rowan's Creek, where Harold Key says he heard a scream. Dwight knows that this is all conjecture, but in later interviews, he admits that he can't rule out the possibility of foul play. There are just too many coincidences. The footprints, the smell, the scream, the skeleton. Dennis has to be somewhere. 
And eventually, pretty much every ranger who worked on the case agrees. They missed something. They keep asking themselves, how can so many people be out there for a full week searching tirelessly for Dennis Martin, only to come away empty-handed? These rangers are willing to come to terms with their mistakes. And because of that, the science of search management is born. There's a nationwide effort to overhaul the approach to search and rescue missions. The National Park Service develops official procedures that put an emphasis on specialized training. Rangers study the psychology of what different types of hikers do when they're lost in the wilderness. From then on out, only trained specialists are cleared to search for clues in the national parks. These procedures prove successful and they spread not only across the country, but across the globe. As one park superintendent put it, you now have people searching in the Australian outback who know the name Dennis Martin. And that's what I respect about these rangers so much. Instead of moving past Dennis Martin, they spend months and years reviewing the case, learning from their mistakes, and ultimately honoring Dennis in the process. Phil Martin died in 2014 without ever knowing what happened to his son. But he would have known that because of his little boy, literally tens of thousands of lives have been saved. Every year, about 100 people go missing from Great Smoky Mountain National Park. Since Dennis Martin, park rangers have found all but four. Dwight McCarter went on to become an expert tracker personally saving more than 26 missing hikers. Several of them were children. In the half century since Dennis disappeared, the forest has encroached considerably on Spence Field. The lawn where they once landed helicopters is overgrown with full-size trees. When the forest runs that wild, it's easy to see how easily someone could disappear without a trace. Now, it's never fair when missing children spark reform or set precedents. I think we all wish Dennis could be brought home and reunited with his family. But because of Dennis, these kinds of stories are getting fewer and farther between. Which, I think, is an amazing legacy to leave behind. Thank you for listening. In the time it took you to finish this episode, 30 people disappeared in the United States alone. If you'd like to support an organization doing work to recover lost hikers and other cases similar to Dennis Martin, you can check out Fowler O'Sullivan Foundation. They provide assistance to families of missing hikers, connecting them to vetted resources and facilitating search efforts once official efforts have been suspended. They also support initiatives aimed at preventing future missing hiker cases. Their website is fofound.org. That's the letters fofound.org. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dark Green, Earth Crimes and Conspiracies, brought to you by Disappearances, a Spotify original from Parcast. Be sure to check out our other shows like Unsolved Murders, Solved Murders, and Serial Killers. You can find all episodes of Disappearances for free on Spotify every Thursday. Among the many sources we used for this episode, we found Lost by Dwight McCarter and Ronald Schmidt incredibly helpful. And if you'd like to learn more and take action on climate change, visit spotify.com slash darkgreenresources. 
Disappearances is a Spotify original from Parcast. Our head of programming is Julian Boireau. Our supervising sound designer is Russell Nash, with Nick Johnson as our head of production, and Quality Control by Spencer Howard. Allie Wicker is our supervising editor, and Derek Jennings is our writing lead. This episode of Disappearances was written by Aaron Lan, edited by Natalie Pertzovsky and Connor Sampson, fact-checked by Kevin Johnson, researched by Mickey Taylor, produced by Aaron Larson, with sound design by Alex Button. I'm your host, Sarah Turney. To hear more stories hosted by me, check out my other podcast, Voices for Justice. 